This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast where we talk about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement. I'm Marianne Manso, a nurse practitioner, and I use my 43 years of nursing experience to help you understand what happens at the end of life. And I'm Charlie Navarrete, an actor in New York and ESL teacher. The more you know, the better prepared you are to die. So I'm here to ask questions that, you know, you might want to ask. So please relax. Get yourself a beverage, something to eat, maybe some tea and some Mm -hmm. pie. Pie. And thank you. Pie. Pie. Humble pie. Go ahead. Pie. Mm -hmm. And thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me. In the first half, we have our recipe of the week from Charlie. And in the second half, I'm going to be talking about breathing as part of our last hours of living series. And in our third half, Charlie's going to have a report about bog people. So, Charlie, Mm -hmm. what's up for the first half? Chicken bog. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Are you kidding me? No. That's what it says here in my script. Chicken bog is a delicious chicken, rice, and sausage dish. I know what you're thinking. Paella. Okay, I'm thinking of it with a lot of garlic. But for our purposes, it's a very much a Southern Carolina thing or thing. Folks in surrounding states are likely to give you a blank stare if you mention it. I know I gave myself a blank stare when I mentioned it. Well, before I get to bog people, let me tell you about bog chicken. Specifically, chicken bog is most popular in Horry County, the home of Myrtle Beach and Conway. It's moister than chicken pilaf, and the name comes from the wetness of the dish, although some speculate that it may come from the bogginess of the area where it is popular. While there are recipes around that include green peppers and other vegetables, purists insist that the only ingredients should be chicken, smoked sausage, rice, salt, and pepper, and perhaps some onions. Put a few drops of your favorite hot sauce on top, and it should be perfect. Mm -mm -mm. Marianne, have you ever had this dish? No. Sounds good. Have you? No. I've had paella, though, as as I mentioned earlier. Did I mention that? Yes, I did. Paella. Mm. Only six times. Yes. So with that, please go to our webpage for not only a link to the recipe, but additional resources for this program. We hope you will follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And please remember to rate and review this podcast. As a nonprofit organization, we are dependent on you, loyal listeners, and those we hope will become listeners. And always appreciate your donations. Please go to our webpage to donate in support of our work, www.org everyonedies.org that's every the number one dies.org thanks Charlie <laughs> sorry sorry I'm coughing so uh, speaking of pulmonary congestion <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about in our second half um, pulmonary congestion at the end of life and this is you know part of our series about The Last Hours of Living, and it's actually our last installment in the that aspect of it. We were talking about peri-death. We talk about what happens before the death, 
the actual death and what happens after. So this is our last in the series of before the death. And so in pulmonary congestion, pulmonary means lungs, um, fluid can accumulate in the lungs. Um, but when you're talking about the last days and hours of living, this really should be avoided um, and be sure not to force fluids on the patient, especially IV fluids. And I'm going to talk about why that's a problem. Um, people who are dying and their caregivers uh, often express a fear of dehydration. Yet some degree of dehydration is preferable during the dying process because it tends to keep the patient more comfortable. Being fully hydrated while dying often leads to lung congestion and shortness of breath. Dying people have enough to worry about without having to struggle for air. So I often hear and I hear questions about, well, how come they're not giving an IV? How come they're not um, suctioning all that fluid out of them? How come they're not doing this and how come they're not doing that? Well, what I would really encourage you to do is ask your hospice nurse, how come? Why not? Mm -hmm. um, or listen to our podcast and I'll tell you how come and why not. Oh, there we are. Yes. So um, there's an airway rattling that occurs and this was you know, once called the death rattle. And you might still hear people calling it the death rattle. But what it actually is, is an accumulation of excess fluid and mucus in the upper airway, which rattles as the patient breathes in and out. So it's sort of like, think of it like sitting like in the back of the throat. And it doesn't make it difficult to breathe. But as the air goes over it, you hear that <sighs> noise. Oh, right. And yeah, so you yeah. say, oh my God, that sounds terrible. How come they can't do anything about that? Well, certain drugs can be given to help dehydrate the patient and clear up this rattling. So sometimes we use a sc scopolamine patch, which, you know, they give for, um, you know, seasickness, that kind of thing, that little patch you put behind oh, your yeah, ear. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that'll dry up secretions. But these drugs themselves um, can cause discomfort. They can cause excessively dry skin, dry mouth, dry eyes. So it's really better to avoid overloading the patient with fluids in the first place than to get caught up in this hazardous game of alternating forcing artificial hydration and, and then having to dehydrate the person. In most cases, natural is better. Just kind of leave it alone and know that air is going to move over that, those fluids. It's not causing discomfort or any problem for the patient. It's hard for us listening to it. Yeah. And if it's, yeah. if it's hard for you to listen to it, then ask your nurse about, you know, can you give us a patch or something to, to dry that up. Um, if upper airway rattling does occur, it can be really loud and, you know, like I said, disturbing for you to listen to. Fortunately, it's seldom as troublesome for the patient as it is for the caregivers. By the time this phenomenon manifests, the patient's usually in a semi or full coma, um, is not aware of any physical discomfort. Suctioning is seldom recommended because it usually causes more discomfort than it alleviates. So, you know, you think, you know, you think about, well, 
you know, when I was in the hospital and I had this, you know, they would just suction it out. Well, this isn't a hospital situation and this isn't a situation where the person's expected to survive. And as I said, it's not causing them any problem. Um, but to relieve upper airway rattling by suction, it usually is necessary to do what's called deep suctioning. That is suctioning all the way down into the main bronchus or into the windpipe. So this requires an experienced clinician and also tends to be traumatic for the patient, no matter how skillfully performed, because of the highly sensitive nature of the windpipe. Nobody likes things jammed down their windpipe and then, you know, a suction put on to pull out whatever's in there. So then, even if this deep suctioning is successful, the rattling is going to return within about 10 to 20 minutes anyway, um, because the upper airway rattling is, you know, kind of your problem and not the patient's problem. Remember your primary goal when you're in the last, you know, hours of living is for the patient to be comfortable. And so the focus is on that person, not on us who are listening to it. And suctioning is not going to help anyway. So there are um, changes in breathing patterns when somebody is dying. As the dying process evolves, certain respiratory patterns can occur. One of the common respiratory patterns is called Shane Stokes breathing. And this is a regularly irregular pattern, meaning the patient takes several breaths, then stops, then takes several more breaths, then stops again, and so on. This is an irregular pattern which will repeat itself regularly. Um, the pause between breaths can be really kind of quite long, especially if you're standing there listening, waiting, is there going to be another breath? Um, it can be between uh, a half to three quarters of a minute, sometimes even longer. Um, family members, loved ones find this very unnerving. And it is seldom a clear indicator of anything specific. It's other than the patient's quite ill. And y'all know that already. And that they're nearing the end of life. So that's called Shane Stokes breathing. And oddly, Charlie, one of my sort of favorite film clips that I would show to students uh -huh. in terms of what Shane Stokes breathing looks like is from Shrek the Third. I don't know if you ever saw that one. And where Shrek and Fiona go back to um, where she, wherever Fiona comes from. And the the frog king is dying. Do you know the scene I'm talking about? Um, I remember, yeah, her going back home and, and all that, yeah. So the frog king is dying, and the donkey and Antonio Banderas's cat character are standing there, and the, the frog king is trying to relate a piece of information. I don't want to be spoiler alert and tell you what it is, but so he's laying there dying and he goes through three cycles of Shane Stokes breathing as he's oh. trying to get this story out, which if you think about it as a children's film is a pretty long time to spend on a frog dying and having Shane Stokes breathing, but it's, 
done very well. And each time the king stops breathing, Antonio Banderas's character takes his hat off and puts it over his oh, heart you know, the yes, first time. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And then the second time. <laughs> And then the third time he leaves his hat on his head and Donkey says, okay, now, <laughs> you know, um, and I'm, and I'm not making light of Chainstokes breathing. I'm just saying that this is how they managed to relate this, this death. And, but it, it has the, the, the breathing, you know, that death rattle that I talked about. It just has the whole thing. So I thought, oh my God, I would love our listeners to be able to just see this. And you know, I put into my search engine Shrek King Dying and I found the film clip. Really? I was just so darn excited. So that's in our show notes if you want to see the scene so you can kind of see what it looks like and what it sounds like because it's, it's very real. And I've seen plenty of family members um, when I've been with people who are at the end of life who it's like that last breath and they'll look at me, is that it? And they'll be like, oh, I don't know. There could be some more. <laughs> there could be more. Because you just really don't know if there's going to be that last, you know, that another big breath. Um, the respiratory pattern, which sometimes appeared just hours prior to actual death, is a regular, fairly deep panting pattern. This pattern is um, driven by the autonomic nervous system after much rest of the brain, as much of the rest of the brain has already shut down. Caregivers um, sometimes mistakenly think this pattern indicates recovery rather than approaching death because it's so regular and appears to be effective. Right, yeah. Um, A final or agonal respiratory breathing problem, we call agonal breathing, is called sort of like that fish out of water breathing. It's an ineffectual gasping of the mouth with little or no intake of air. This agonal gasping occurs very close to physical death. The final signs taken at the moment of death are frequently deep cleansing breaths or sighs. Sometimes there are two or three, sometimes only one. So what can you do to help? Um, Elevate the head of the bed or turn the patient on one side can bring comfort. Uh, Use your hands to touch and to soothe. Speak gently. Be comforting. Be there. Be close. What's happening is normal. There aren't anything to do there except to be present and this is how we die um if the patient is suffering if the patient's not the person's your loved one's not being able to get their breath then there's medicines that we can do and we've we've talked about that in our difficulty breathing um podcast so you guys will have to go back a few podcasts and and listen to that one because that's a different situation than these breathing patterns that i'm talking about that are right up until the minutes of death so they're different um you can't take one bit of knowledge and apply it in every situation this is a different situation. So then with this, what it's just a normal 
it's just a process of, of dying at the very end, which is not the same as someone can't breathe. Right. Okay. Right. This is the body is, you know how you, know, you give birth to a baby and they're, they're waiting for that first breath and that cry that says right. they're, they're, they're alive and, yes. and they pink up, you know, they, they come out not necessarily a pretty color and they take that first breath and they give that first cry and they pink up. This is that in reverse, in, reverse, sure. in that yeah. they're, you know, going to that point where there is no more breathing and their color is, you know, losing that nice fresh color, um, having that bluish tinge, and th the breath is going to stop. So, you know, I guess my point is the breath starts at birth and it ends at death and there's expected things that happen, and this is an expected thing. Yeah. Do you have any other questions about that? No, uh, but what it, it's just what you've um, mentioned about, you know, people. I mean, I did the first time, you know, I was, you know, next to someone who was dying, and I kept thinking, you know, why doesn't the doctor do something? Why, you know, where's 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 the nurse? Why isn't she? At, and you know, other people in the room, you know, were smarter and explain no no this is just this is part of the process you know you know he's okay um you know he's comfortable um he told me giving him some um, medicine just you know help him relax and reduce some pain but that this was part of the dying process there wasn't anything mm -hmm. yeah he, he's breathing as expected at this point in his life it's not like he can't breathe and never, that would be a different situation, you know, as you were describing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it's, and I'm not in any way implying that because it's normal, it's easy oh, to watch. Oh, right, exactly. No, it's not. Yeah. It's yeah. just, but it's not hard on them, and that's what's that's what's. So yeah, and that's the biggest thing. But I think if, but I think if you go in knowing, okay, here's here's, here's what, what I'm what, likely what to, to see. Exactly. Yeah. Then it's less disturbing. It's like this is what's going to happen. Yeah, and as we always talk about, this is you know part of the reason we you know do the show is you know to normalize death, but also so that you're prepared. You know the yeah. the person you know who either is dying or the, you know people who are you know left behind who are still alive. So. Mm -hmm. You know, I always think information is power, and yep. you know we're giving you that. Yeah. Power to be prepared. So what do you have for our third half, Charles? Well, do you remember the film The Revenant from a few years back? A vampire I is a so. well, a vampire is a revenant because it returns after death. In the film, Leonardo DiCaprio is also a revenant, but because he returns after a long absence and gets an Oscar. Which brings us to Bog People. <laughs> I think it's a stretch, but go ahead. I, I, I love these transitions, this smooth little transition. So, from our friends at Wiki, a bog body is a human cadaver that has been naturally mummified in a peat bog. Such bodies, sometimes known as bog people, are both geographically and chronologically widespread, having been dated to between 8,000 BCE and the Second World War. 
in the movies, the decay or you know, TV shows, the decay of a body is typically complete. Nothing left but bones that remain in anatomically correct order. In real, <laughs> yes, in, you know, you're a nurse. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In, in, in real yeah. life, no. Keep in mind that a body decomposes in air twice as quickly as in water and eight times as rapidly as in earth. Now, before we move on, let's review. If a dead body has not changed, then we're talking vampire. Put a stake through its heart, expose it to sunlight, bada bing, bada boom. But, and this is a big but, under certain conditions, body may not decompose at all. And this is where the other type of revenant, okay, remember a return after a long absence and Leonardo DiCaprio's Oscar, happens. Mm -hmm. A mm -hmm. superabundance of moisture, a little air, a few microorganisms, a process called saponification may take place, which preserves the body indefinitely. Bodies can be preserved by immersion in acid peat bogs, as is the case with so-called bog people many of whom date back from the early Iron Age, you know, a couple of thousand years ago. Wow. According to Christian Fisher, the reason for the preservation of bog bodies lies in the special physical and biochemical makeup of the bog, above all the absence of oxygen and the high antibiotic concentration. The manner in which the body was deposited is also of great importance. For example, placed in the bog in such a way that the air was rapidly excluded. Also important, the weather was cold enough, less than 4 degrees Celsius, to prevent rapid decomposition of the body. National Geographic refers to bog people as accidental mummies preserved in layers of peat formed by a bog. The best preserved bodies were all found in raised bogs, which form in basins where poor drainage slows plant decay. Over thousands of years, layers of sphagnum moss accumulate eventually forming a dome fed entirely by rainwater. A raised bog contains few minerals and very little oxygen, but lots of acid. In low northern European temperatures, where bog people have been found, it's a type of refrigerator for conserving the dead. A body there decomposes extremely slowly. Soon after burial, the acid starts tanning the body's skin, hair, and nails. As a spank... Huh. Yes. So no more trips to the uh, beauty salon. I know. As the sphagnum moss dies, it releases a carbohydrate that halts the growth of bacteria, which further mummifies the corpse. Sphagnum also extracts calcium, which is why after one or 2,000 years of marination, bodies can be so well-preserved that their discoverers have gone to the police, as it seemed to them that a murder had taken place recently rather than 2,000 years ago. You know, check out our website for additional pictures and references. That's interesting. Yeah, it really is. And yeah, when, when, you, when you check out these pictures, you saw the pictures, Marianne. It's, it looks like the person just yeah. died. Yeah. Uh, and in some cases, they're, um, you know, and, and the person, you know, person's hair is there. Some of the clothing um, is still there, but it's just the body is just so well preserved. <laughs> that you know, I need to start taking like peat bog baths or something, or sleep in a peat bog, or 
Well, we, we all, we all, you know, like just put a little straw up so I can breathe. Maybe wear my scuba equipment. Um, you know, yeah, and then I would be like really well preserved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so something mm-hmm. to keep in mind for a future episode. Please stay tuned for future escapades on Everyone Dies, and thank you for listening. This is Charlie Navarrete reminding you of Isaac Asimov's observation. That life is pleasant, death is peaceful, it's a transition that's troublesome. Mm. And I'm Marianne Matzo, and we will see you next week. Remember, stay away from bogs, especially if you are a chicken. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And every day is a gift. Thank you. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.